You can check out our website, theeerietouch.com, for our reference photos and source materials for each episode. You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, and YouTube. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for new leads and updates. And we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. It would really help us out. Hey y'all, I'm your host Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. Welcome to the Eerie Touch, where we dive into all things murder, mystery, and paranormal every week. Today's episode has been highly requested from many of you, so the story we're going to tell you today is of a girl who was just starting her life out, really. It was a Tuesday night she spent hanging out with a girlfriend when she decided to walk back to her dorm to study. A simple stroll that most of us have taken. Unfortunately for her, it was a walk that she would pay for with her life. This is the story of Judy Ann Howard. It's September of 1986. Game consoles were becoming a big hit. Super Mario Brothers had just come out and Tetris had been out for just a couple of years. Hair metal bands were rocking and rolling and kids spent their weekends hanging out at the mall or going to theaters. Teenagers spent their Friday and Saturday nights cruising with friends. Money was good for most, and people were all about having a good time. Oh, and I love the 80s. (laughs) I was in grade school. Uh, Nintendo just come out. Had the greatest cartoons. G.I. Joe, Transformers, Saturday morning cartoons. (laughs) Playing outside with your friends till the porch light come on. Yeah, it was just the greatest. Attending college was becoming more and more prominent because unlike today, you were for sure promised a job once you graduated. This is how we meet Judy. Judy was your all-American 18-year-old good girl. She was from Martin County, Kentucky, which is about 45 minutes from South Williamson, Kentucky. She lived in Martin County with her parents, Don and Betty Howard. Like most men in the area, Don was a coal miner and that provided him with a pretty good foundation to support his family. Dawn and Betty raised Judy the good old-fashioned Southern way, in church. She grew up on Sunday schools and Bible camp week through the summers. Church members were quoted in the local Messenger Inquirer that they watched Judy grow up from a young girl to a young woman and that she was like a daughter to all of them. And Judy wasn't like your normal, you know, like sex-driven party-goer teenager back in the 80s. She was a good girl. So much so that her parents fully trusted her. She was close to her parents, especially her mom. You know, you can't talk to your dads about everything, if you get my drift. Judy was always honest with her parents and was known to be an all-around sweet girl. She was well-liked, which resulted in her having a close-knit collection of friends who would never hesitate to be there for Judy when she needed it and vice versa. Once she graduated from high school, Judy was accepted into Alice Lloyd College. Alice Lloyd is located in Pippa Passes near Hazard, Kentucky. It's a very small town, and the primary center of it is the college. Now, it started out as a junior college in 1923, but in the 80s, they began granting bachelor degrees, which is in the same time frame that Judy attended. Now, it's known as a Christian college. Their own philosophy is based on the Christian faith, and they promote Christian principles and values. So it's no surprise she went there. Exactly. A lot of Christian students in the area gravitated towards Alice Lloyd, as did Judy. 
Anyway, so with all of that being said, though, I've been to Alice Lloyd multiple times. I had a cousin who spent her first year there, and, you know, we grew up close. So just to give you an idea of where this place is, you literally drive up a holler in what feels like the middle of nowhere, and all the way at the head of it is Alice Lloyd. It is a super small knit community for sure, and there's there's only one way out and one way in, and because of that, you didn't have a lot of crime up there. Which is why when the night of September 16th, 1986 hit, it left the entire community speechless. It's a Tuesday night and Judy was at another dormitory hanging out with one of her girlfriends. Even though Judy was starting out her sophomore year, she hadn't settled on a major yet, but she had been heavily showing interest in psychology. They were having girl talk and discussing that topic and after some supportive conversation, Judy looks at the clock and realizes it's getting pretty late. And she has classes tomorrow, so it's time for her to go back, study, and head to bed. It's about 10.30 p.m., and she begins to head back to her dormitory, which was in a neighboring building. Something she had done many times before, but what she didn't know about was the monster that was waiting on her. Clavern Jacobs was 39 years old, living in Pippa Passes, where he was born and raised. He was a vet from the Vietnam War, where he served in the 27th Infantry. He was... A rough man, honestly. You could look at him and tell that. Well, that, I'm telling you, he looks like a freaking weirdo. Like, he just had this crazy look. <laughs> like, here, let me show you a picture. Wow, yeah. The long hair balding on top, the dark circles around his eyes. <laughs> uh, he's the kind of guy, if I was lost and needed to ask for directions and seen him, I'd keep driving. <laughs> Yeah. For yeah. sure. Like his hair, his hair, I'll tell you, like his hairline goes like all the way like to his, uh, what's that called? Your crown? Yeah. Your crown. And then like the hair he does have goes down to his shoulders and it's like real stringy looking. Yeah. It's weird. The, the dark circles. Yeah. I, I'm saying, I, I, yeah, I'd keep driving. <laughs> yeah. Just looking at him puts me on edge. He looks like Truggle to me. Despite his troublesome look then, in his younger years, he was your average soldier. He wanted to be looked up to, but he had an almost overbearing, flirtatious personality when it came to women. Like, he wanted to be a ladies' man. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can think of a few guys like that. They're they're very (laughs) overbearing and aggressive. Yes. Trying to be flirty. Yes. Well, unlike Judy, Claiborne was just starting his night. He stops at a gas station owned by Claude Gibson and fills up his pickup truck. He had his sights set on finding a woman or girl to warm his bed that night, so to speak. And when he's paying for his gas, he's chatting with the attendant like a lot of us do. Just short chit-chat, and when he starts to leave, he says something that later on leaves the attendant horrified. Claiborne walks out saying, and I quote, Now, let's go find us a woman. He starts off towards Alice Lloyd, which is about a mile away from the gas station. He drives all the way to the head of that holler until he reaches Alice Lloyd. He parks his running truck outside of Judy's dormitory and waits. So did he know Judy? He didn't know Judy. He was just waiting for an opportunity that just so happens to come across him. Judy makes it so close to the main door. She's only like a hundred feet away when all of a sudden... Claiborne jumps out of his truck and attacks her. 
He forces her into his vehicle, all the while she's screaming and trying to get loose. And no one's heard or saw her? Someone did see her, but in an attempt to save her, the student who witnessed it just didn't make it in time before Claiborne took off with Judy. In a panic, that unnamed student calls Kentucky State Police and the college's security. Immediately, both join forces and start trying to locate this mysterious truck in the hopes of rescuing Judy. So the police knew what kind of truck he drove? I'm assuming to an extent at least, yes. I couldn't find in any articles or court documents that went into detail about what the make and model or color or anything was. But, I mean, I'm going to assume they had an idea. Well, it being around 11 o'clock at night, you know, it's really dark. I can see it being hard to make out the features. Yeah. And remember, this witness was a bit away, so when you factor in distance and the darkness, I'd say so. What authorities didn't know, though, was while they were driving around town, Claiborne had actually driven to Smith's Branch, which was about seven miles away from the college. He drove off to a secluded spot in attempts to rape Judy. Though Judy wasn't having it. She was fighting back with all of her might. He had managed to remove her jacket, her top, and her bra, before she just became too much to handle. He rips off her jeans and panties, but his horrific plan just wasn't going as smoothly as he had thought originally. Claiborne was under the impression that, you know, he was going to kidnap this young girl who would be too afraid to keep fighting and would just give up, but Judy wasn't that type. She was a fighter. She's scratching, hitting, kicking, screaming, and manages to make it out of the truck. However... In a fit of rage, Claiborne tackles her to the ground and begins to bash her head in with a rock nearby until her scream stops and her body goes limp. He throws her body over a hill nearby and returns to his truck. Around 1.30 that morning, it had been three hours since Judy's abduction. Police make their way up Smith's Branch and sees a truck covered with mud. Of course, I'm, they thought that wasn't suspicious at all. <laughs> A truck just sitting on some secluded little road? No, no, not suspicious at all. <laughs> We're kidding. Police did, in fact, find it suspicious. They draw their guns and ease their way to the driver's side door. Inside, to their dismay, they find Claiborne Jacobs, covered in blood, just sitting there. Authorities hold him at gunpoint and ask him where Judy is and what he did to her. To which I'm sure he wouldn't tell. Of course not. I mean, how many people have you arrested that actually just come clean and tell you the truth at least right away? Not as many as I'd wish. <laughs> it would definitely make things a lot easier. Well, then it should be no surprise to you that he doesn't say a word. Until Kentucky State Police start combing through the area and find Judy's naked body dumped over an embankment about 20 yards from Claiborne's pickup truck. And let me guess, it wasn't him. You would be correct. It's never them. It's always somebody else. That's exactly what he tells police. He just starts like word vomiting all over the place. He swears up and down that Judy willingly left with him. And they pulled in when all of a sudden there was like three or four people who ran down from the mountain and began to just beat the crap out of him. And they are the ones that took Judy away. He didn't even know that her body was over there. Those people must have killed her, he says. And I'm just like, really? Like, out of everything you could have made up, and that's the story you're rolling with. From experience, that's, that's a terrible, terrible story. But <laughs> they'll come up with anything. It's always somebody else done it. Uh, you know, I wasn't there. Or you know, I, I, I think it was them. 
uh, <laughs> these ain't my pants. <laughs> I don't know how that got in my pocket. But I can already tell you that there's no way I'd ever believe that a good young girl like Judy would have willingly left with a 30 year old, 39, 39, mm-hmm, 39. 39 year old man, uh, especially when it looks like him. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And no, me either. There ain't no way. Not even if hell freezes over. Anyways, authorities aren't buying it either. They take Claiborne into custody and begin to search the cab of his truck. Inside, they find ladies' blue jeans, a white blouse, a white bra, and to make things even more damning, they find Judy's keys that have her name on a keychain and a tan Alice Lloyd jacket with Judy's school ID tag in the right pocket, and instantly, they know that they have the right man. Once at the station, they retrieve Claiborne's DNA, they swab the blood that he's covered in, and sends his clothes off for testing. Now, over at the medical examiner's office, Dr. Hensaker III is slowly but surely discovering what really happened. As it turns out, even after death, Judy was able to tell what horror she endured. According to Dr. Hensaker's report, Judy had obvious signs of retaliation. She had bruises and various injuries to her hands and fingers that fit the profile for someone trying to ward off an attack. She had cuts and bruises all over her body from being beaten and He believed that the blows to her head rendered her unconscious and that her death was short. What about Claiborne's DNA? Did Dr. Hunsaker find any of his on her or hers on him from the rape? Well, that's the thing. I don't know if it makes it any better or not, but after thoroughly going over Judy's body, it showed no signs of sexual intercourse in any matter. The only DNA that was found on Judy was Claiborne's saliva, which could have been from the altercation or, dare I say, his attempt at rape, and his skin was found under her nails. Another great sign of her fighting back. Yes. It's very obvious at this point that Judy did not go down without a fight. Word about her death runs through the town rapid like a forest fire on a windy day. Every newspaper, every magazine, and every local news station was running stories with Judy Ann Howard as the main tagline. All the while, everyone was just as upset and surprised as you would think, but it was also creating a never-ending cycle of grief for Judy's close family and friends. Judy's roommate Denise was so distraught about the whole fiasco that she was scared to even go out at night. Denise's close family has even said till this day that she remains bothered by the incident that took place that night. Judy's parents, Dawn and Betty, were wrapped up in their own personal hell. Their daughter was gone, and it was hard to accept the fact that that statement was true. It was like a nightmare that they couldn't wake up from. The entire community of Pippa Passes banded together to help support the family and pay tribute to Judy's life. On Thursday, September 19th, Alice Lloyd held a morning memorial service in the college gymnasium for students and faculty. Most were still shell-shocked, and the speakers at the memorial chose to speak of remembering Judy how she was and not how she is. The service lasted about 30 minutes before letting out. And that Friday that followed, about 500 family members, friends, and fellow students gathered together for Judy's funeral. The large turnout was as expected. Like I said before, the community was very close-knit. If you knew anything about the area, you would know that above all else, it operated pretty much like a family. The flowers on her closed casket were piled high-high on either side, and as Reverend James Maynard closed in prayer, Dawn and Betty bowed their heads and wept for their daughter. The funeral was over. 
but the aftermath was just beginning. Finally, the reports come back on Claiborne's clothes and the blood that he was covered in. Police read over it to learn that they aren't that surprised. The blood did come back as Judy's, and in his underwear and his pants was semen. His semen. Which disgusts me to absolutely no end. Police believe he got off on the whole ordeal, and that makes me literally want to castrate this man. Through it all, even with all of this evidence, he still claims he is innocent. Wow, so he didn't know that there was a witness and that he saw him kidnap Judy? It's hard to tell. I didn't find it stated anywhere, but I think it's safe to say that during interrogation, detectives probably brought that up. Yeah, probably. Uh, during interrogations, you want to shut down each lie, each lie that the perpetrator may tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a strategy. Uh, usually, it'll start off with, okay, tell us what happened from this time to this time. Mm, most of the time, we already know what's happened. Right. So, as you're telling the story, we're making a mental count of okay, you're leaving this out, you're leaving this out, you're leaving this out. <clears throat> what I like to do is they tell a story, I'll repeat it back to them with a little bit of stuff they left out just to see how they react and to see if they'll actually, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And then you mm-hmm. just, just keep doing that back and back till you push them into a corner. It's pretty, it's pretty effective. Okay. Well, it didn't take much for the community authorities and even some of Claiborne's own family to believe him a guilty man. After all, this wasn't the first time he's murdered a girl and told a blatant lie to try to get out of it. Do what? You heard me. In 1974, Claiborne Jacobs was arrested and sentenced to 21 years in prison for the death of 55-year-old Knott County woman Katie Gibson. He raped and then shot her in the head. He throws her body in a creek, throws her sweater in a tree, and then drives to the Hyman Jail to claim he's being followed and explains to those officers his version of what happened. And the story that he tells them is that Katie and him were sleeping together when all of a sudden, a group of people just started surrounding his car and pulled him out and whipped him. They shot Katie in the car and pistol whipped him on the head when he was trying to get back inside the car. Now, he did have a big gash on his head, but in documents, police believe that that gash was a result of Katie fighting back. He fails to mention that he threw Katie's body out of the car into the creek, which I don't understand why you would even do that if something like that did really happen. Through all of that, though, a jury found him guilty, and he did serve a couple of those 21 years, but his lawyer sends an appeal, and his conviction ends up being overturned on a prejudiced juror. Once again, the court system failing us. I just cannot believe they let him out because of that. I know, but that's just part of it. A prejudiced juror is someone who walked into the courtroom, even before the case even started, and already had their mind made up that he was guilty. For a reason why you get selected to be on jury, the judge asks you certain questions. Uh, do you know the defendant? You know, how, how do you know them? Anything that might prejudice your opinion uh, of him, you know. Uh, there's also, did you read about it in the paper? Did you hear about it on the news? There's, there's mm-hmm. different factors that can go into play uh, because if you know and already have your mind made up before you go in, you should not serve on that jury. And, and these laws are put in place to protect the defendant. Say you're, com- you're, you're accused of committing a crime, uh, but somebody on the jury just doesn't like you. Whether you know they, they don't like you or not, uh, you, you, you do have some say in, in who gets picked on that jury. But say this, you think this juror, you know this juror, 
but for some reason this juror has doesn't like you or whatever else, he's going to say you're guilty just because of some slight you may have done to him in the past that you don't know about. So they would have to put you off the jury so that that, that doesn't happen. Yeah, but it obviously went the opposite direction here because Claiborne was released just to kill again. That's true, but in the court of law, everyone, even the accused, deserves the right to a fair and speedy trial. I'm rolling my eyes right now. I know what you're saying, and I understand what you're saying, but I feel as if this was a grave mistake that, in the end, another girl had to pay the price for. But moving on, because we're getting off topic. With evidence piling up against him, Claiborne's attorney decides to pick the famous route that all defense attorneys do when I feel like they're backed into a corner and they have nowhere else to go. Pleading insanity. His attorney tries to say that due to Claiborne being in war that he was insane, stating that when he came back from war, he, and I quote, smashed the heads of puppies and kittens against walls. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, like just... That's a a strange thing to say. (laughs) I just pulled that, like, literally out of nowhere. But during the rebuttal, though, Claiborne's own family, who was half believing he was guilty and the other half believed he wasn't, surrendered over letters that he had wrote to them after the Vietnam War where he was, you know, fine and normal. Don't get me wrong. he, He was weird. He believed Pat Robertson, who was a TV evangelist, was the Antichrist, but... Then again, a lot of people did. And just because you were in war doesn't mean you're going to lose your mind and plan out this big horrific murder. Yeah, there's a lot of soldiers that come back from war with PTSD and and mental issues due to everything they've went through, everything they've seen, and they're not out murdering people. I, I know, right? And even if he was crazy, does that excuse the fact that he murdered a sweet college girl? That he had this somewhat planned out before? No. He was sane enough to take care of himself all those years. He knew right from wrong. And right from wrong plays a big role in all this. What do you mean? The fact that he immediately started lying to cover up the murder, it just confirms to me that he did know the right from wrong. He knew he was going to get in trouble, so he's trying to look for a way out. When you're desperate in that type of situation, you don't care how crazy your life sounds as long as you stick to it and repeat it long enough in the hopes that somebody's going to believe it. Hmm. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, definitely. Regardless of his attorney's defense strategy, Claiborne wasn't having it. He told the News Express in an interview that he was not crazy and that he was against his lawyer even trying to say that about him. He stuck to his story. Dr. Alec White ends up taking the stand on behalf of Claiborne's defense, and Dr. White talks of Claiborne's manifestations of delusional disorder. He admits, though, that he only was able to look at medical records from the past eight years because when he met with Claiborne to do his own updated evaluation, he only got about 15 minutes in before Claiborne bucks up on him and wouldn't answer any more of his questions. So he admits that he can't give an honest answer because he didn't get to evaluate him. But either way, it doesn't matter. Later during trial, he starts folding his tongue when he switches it up and says that he thought Judy was a prostitute. He claims a friend told him about some student at Alice Lloyd named Tanya who was also a prostitute. And he says that the reason he was even at Alice Lloyd was because he was supposed to have met up with Tanya. 
And while he's there, a woman approaches him, which would have been Judy, and he asked if she was Tanya, and supposedly, Judy says yes and agrees to come with him in his truck. I find that hard to believe. First of all, that doesn't make the situation any better. No. I don't care if he actually killed a prostitute. I mean, you shouldn't be murdering anyone. Mm -hmm. Second of all, why would Judy lie and say that she was Tanya? And last but not least, there's a witness who saw everything go down. Yeah. Not to mention his story keeps changing, and he knows right from wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. The trial itself was gruesome, as pictures of the scene and Judy's nude body were presented as evidence. Many jurors held back tears as they forced themselves to take in the scene that they were introduced to. Don and Betty left the courtroom immediately following that dispense. You know, they just, they couldn't bear the sight of their daughter lying in the middle of that crime scene. It seemed the prosecutor, though, was successfully tapping into the jury's emotion with ease, given the severity of the homicide. And as awful as that may sound, what the prosecutor done was the right thing. You want to bring out those emotions. Uh, you want to make make it personal. Uh, you want to make this, uh, you know, this was a person. This was a human being. And, and you want to show the jury the, the, all the gruesome details. No matter how hard it is, they, they need to understand the whole situation. You want to get that strong emotion uh, by showing them the gruesome photos from the murder scene like he did. He wants to draw those emotions out of a jury in hopes making them more likely to convict the defendant. As an example, it's one tactic of getting that strong emotion you're looking for is by showing these gruesome, gruesome photos from the murder scene like he did. So, you want to have that emotion in the courtroom? Exactly. Okay. Well, it obviously worked in the prosecutor's favor because the jury found Claiborne guilty of murdering Judy and sentenced him to death for capital murder, life for kidnapping, and 20 years for attempted rape, which sounds about right, you know? Yeah, an eye for an eye, a lie for a life. I have to agree to that. Mm-hmm. A juror stood and told Claiborne, and I quote, You need to ask the Lord to be with you. Although you're losing your life here, that soul can be saved. Yeah, sounds like he got exactly what he deserved, except later on he gets an appeal with the argument that the trial should have been moved to a different county. So basically his argument was the same as it was with Kate Gibson. An unfair trial. Mm-hmm. Since the trial originally was held in Knott County, his team argued that the media played too big of a role for the jury to have had a clear mind when they came up with their guilty verdict. But thankfully, this new jury didn't let him back off this time. During that retrial, that jury reverses the death sentence to life in prison with mercy. Though, I'm happy they didn't let him out, but the reverse on that death sentence just doesn't sit right with me. What also doesn't sit right with me is that Claiborne Jacobs will be up for parole in August of 2021 this year. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean he'll get out. Being eligible for parole just means that he will be eligible to go before the parole board and explain why he should be released. There are a lot of inmates who don't get granted release, mostly on their first time, so that's not a for sure promise that he'll be out anytime soon. Well, I certainly hope so. Judy Ann Howard was a beautiful young woman who lost the chance to experience all that life had to offer. She missed out on graduating, she missed out on marriage, kids growing old, following through on all of her hopes and dreams. We often take too many things for granted, and I think it's important to realize that we are not promised tomorrow. Judy spent the last night of her life in hell. 
And all I can do is hope that Claiborne Jacobs will spend his eternity in the same hell he put her through. Again, I'm your host, Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. We'll talk next week.